Your Majesty, I am that Nunez Cabeza de Vaca, who lately sent you a relation of his shipwrecks and mischances during the eight years he was absent from your dominions. In painful doubt whether my words were clear enough, I write again. Be my forgiving reader, Your Majesty. Grant me your grace. I was at the Battle of Ravenna in 1512. Between dawn and sunset that day perished a thousand score. Young as I was, Ravenna taught me something of how easy to tear asunder and destroy a man is, body and spirit. In the days that followed, in my desolation first confronted with slaughter, I saw a far-off light, heard a far-off strain of music. Again, that far-off flicker of music came to me in the disorders at Seville in 1521, when I fought under the Duke of Medina Sidonia. Seven years passed without that flash of inward fire, and I forgot about it. Seville was then a marvellous, disturbing world. I saw the heretics burning in the arms of the iron prophets. I saw Columbus as an old man. Magellan as a young man. The sailors came ashore with parrots and gold ingots and Indian girls. Then I too sailed across the seas, Lord Treasurer of the expedition of Pamphilo Narvaez. As I told Your Majesty in my account of my journey, never had expedition more calamities than ours. Some of our ships foundered from hurricanes in the harbours of Cuba. The others we left behind deliberately in the lagoons of Florida. Our greatest misfortune, aside from our greed and ignorance, lay in our commander, Pamphilo Narvaez himself. Pamphilo believed himself born under a lucky star, though nothing justified such a belief. Across that steaming land we marched with our armour glittering, and our horses covered with gaudy trappings, 578 of us, towards utter ruin. Pamphilo would summon the copper-coloured natives and tell them with gestures that he was searching for a city of the size and value of Tenochtitlan. The Indians had never heard of Tenochtitlan, nor of Montezuma, but they had heard of a big town and pointed northwards, exclaiming, Apalachi! Apalachi was no Tenochtitlan. We found it. It was in an immense swamp. 
There was nothing for it but seek the sea again and sail back to Cuba. Our arms and armour made us feel like dolts, and we wished we had pierced the jungle carrying carpenter's tools. For now, without axe, adze or hammer, we had to build ourselves boats. This is the tale of what men can and cannot do when they must do something or die. We built nine open boats. Our 580 men had become 400 when at last we set sail and left behind us the Indian marksmen and the snakes, neither of which in Florida err when they strike. Day after day, tide and wind washed us out to sea and then washed us into land along a dazzling and uncertain coast. From thirst and from the exposure to the frightful sun, our 400 became 40. Who knows what was lost in these boats? Another Magellan, another Camoens, another Cervantes, another St. John of the Cross... No one has so sympathetic an imagination as your majesty. You will understand what I am not telling you, that I saw men jump overboard mad from thirst and sun, that I saw them swell and die slowly in delirium, heard their words and songs put out the pitiful contents of their minds, that I saw men gnaw at corpses, and that these were Spanish gentlemen. Yet again, that music, that fitful run and flash of brightness I first heard on the battlefield of Ravenna. Your Majesty is renowned as a patron of music. Here was a music it is possible you may never have heard. Somewhere on that coast, a handful of us crawled ashore and were fed and tended by kindly Indians till we regathered nervous vitality for the hopeless voyage to Cuba. We stripped and launched the boat, first putting our clothes aboard her. But a great coma capsized the rotten, heavy hulk, imprisoning and drowning three of us. The others emerged mother naked on the beach shivering in the November wind of that overcast afternoon. The Indians came back and found us as naked as they were, and our barge gone and in tears. They sat down beside us and cried too. I cried all the harder to think people so miserable had pity for us. That evening, for fear we might die on the way, the Indians made fires at intervals along the path to their village warming us at each fire. That night, and many nights after, we slept beside them, on the oyster shells which floor their huts, wrapped in hides against the cold winds from the sea. While we were subjects of your majesty, we had everything life offers, and now we had nothing. To understand what it means to have nothing, one must have nothing. 
No clothing against the weather might appear the worst. But for us poor skeletons who survived it, it was not. The worst lay in parting, little by little, with the thoughts that clothe the soul of a European. And most of all, with the idea that a man attained strength through dirk and dagger and serving in Your Majesty's guard. We had to surrender such fantasies till our inward nakedness was the nakedness of an unborn babe, starting life anew in a womb of sensations which in themselves can mysteriously nourish. Several years went by before I could relax in that living plexus, for which even now I have no name. But only when at last I relaxed could I see the possibilities of a life in which to be deprived of Europe was not to be deprived of too much. In April, the Indians went down to the sea, taking us with them. For a whole month, we ate the blackberries of the sand dunes. The Indians danced incessantly. They asked us to cure their sick. When we said we did not know how to cure, they withheld our food from us. We began to watch the procedure of their medicine men. It seemed to us both irreligious and uninstructed. Besides, we found the notion of healing Indians somewhat repellent as your majesty will understand. But we had to heal them or die. So we prayed for strength. We prayed on bended knees and in an agony of hunger. Then, over each ailing Indian, we made the sign of the cross and recited the Ave Maria and a Pater Nostra. To our amazement, the ailing said they were well. Being Europeans, we thought we had given away to doctors and priests our ability to heal. But here it was, still in our possession, even if we had only Indians to exercise it upon. It was ours after all. We were more than we had thought we were. To be more than I thought I was, a sensation utterly new to me. Starvation, nakedness, slavery, sensations utterly new to me also. The last of my fellow Spaniards on the island dies. Nothing to eat after the sea roots sprouted but the blackberries of the sand dunes. Nothing to protect me from the attack of the terrible frost or the terrible sun. In this wilderness, I became a trader and went to and fro on the coast and a little inland. I came to be well known among the tribes and found out the lay of the land. One day, I heard someone calling me by name. Alvar Nunez! Alvar Nunez! It was Alonso del Castillo, one of the captains of the expedition. He said that Pamphilo's barge had drifted ashore among unfriendly Indians, and left of its occupants were only himself and Captain Andres Torantes, and Dorantes Blackamoor, Estevanico. 
Thus, our 580 had become 400. Our 440 and our 44. Nothing of me, Your Majesty, existed then outside of that music I first heard at Ravenna. A gulf deeper than ocean yawns between the old world and the new, and what by now I was accustomed to would startle a burgher of Madrid or of Salamanca. Indians came, bringing five persons, shriveled and paralyzed and very ill. Each of the five offered Castillo silently his bows and arrows. Castillo prayed, we with him. In the morning, the five were cured. Indians came from many places, but Castillo was always afraid his sins would interfere with his working miracles. The Indians turned to me. I told Castillo it was no moment for indulging the idea of being sinful. And then I followed the Indians to their ranch. The dying man was dead. Dorantes and I found him with eyes upturned and no pulse. I removed the mat that covered him and prayed. At last, the something in me like a membrane broke. And I was confident the old man would rise up again. As he did. During the night, the natives came to tell us he had talked, eaten, and walked about. They gave us many presents, and we left them the happiest people on earth, for they had given away their very best. Our journey westward was but a long series of encounters. The moment one accosts a stranger or is accosted by him is above all in this life the moment of drama. 
The eyes of Indians who crossed my trail have searched me to the very depths to estimate my power. It is true the world over. Whoever we meet watches us intently at the quick, strange moment of meeting to see whether we are disposed to be friendly. the afternoon we crossed a big river, more than waist deep, as wide as the Guadalquivir at Seville, and with a swift current. I speak of it again because I loved it. was the village where each Indian wished to be the first to touch us, and we were squeezed almost to death in the sweating crowd. The village so solicitous to be blessed that Alonso fainted of exhaustion. Plain, where first we saw mountains, very low, like white sheep lying down. The village, where they were so pertinacious about touching us all over that in three hours we could not get through with them. village where many had one eye clouded and others were totally blind from the same cause, which amazed us. A mountain seven leagues long, the stones of which were iron slags. night when the moon was round, and in its light a multitude of dwellings beside an unexpected and charming river. A man who some years since had been shot through the left side of the back with an arrow. He told me the wound made him feel sick all the while. I observed that the head of the arrow lay in the cartilage. I prayed for an hour, and then grasped the very sharp, thin stone which served me as a knife, and cut open the breast. Feeling for the arrowhead, I thrust my hand into the palpitating tissue of the body. Your Majesty, that we human beings should be made of limp, wet meat appeared to me a strange 
and that we should also be air and spirit. And in that hour, nausea and a quick curiosity mingled with my pity. Fifty leagues through a land of desert with nothing to eat and little to drink. Through villages where the women dressed in white deerskin and people lived in real houses. People the best formed we had seen, the liveliest and most capable and those who best understood us. Moonlight in another adobe village, and we four alternately standing or lying down in the center of the plaza, and the Indians running to us from all the houses with gifts, touching us and running back to the houses for more gifts, running to us again and touching us, a living, glistening cobweb of runners in the moon, keeping up for hours this naked flesh, to and fro from center to periphery, periphery to center. Long, long march on the road, meeting people, thrown into relations with them, having to meet demands often terrible and, without the aid of mysterious power, impossible. Demands of healing and understanding and constantly the exorcism of fear. With a reasonable man and a timorous man and a carnal man as my companions. And even part of me. And who is any of us that without starvation... He can go through the kingdoms of starvation. And 17 successive days of starvation. And a sunset on a plain between very high mountains with a people who for four months of the year eat only powdered straw. And more starvation. And permanent houses once more, where maize is harvested, and where they gave us brightly decorated blankets. For a hundred leagues, good houses and harvested crops, the women better treated than anyone else. They wear shoes and blouses open in front and tied with deer string. At sunrise, these people lift their clasped hands to the horizon and pass them over their bodies. At sunset, they repeat the gesture. As I watched them at these devotions, I recalled a youngster from Cadiz, one of those who died of thirst beside me in the open boat. That boy drank in the beauty of Florida, watched palm and headland along the coast, even in his final delirium. I was sorry he had not lived on to see these natives laving their golden figures in the gold of dawn. At last, we found a sign of our countrymen, what through years and years we had been praying for. On the neck of an Indian, a little silver buckle from a sword belt with a horseshoe nail sewed inside it. They told us our countrymen had burnt all the villagers, taking with them half the men and all the women and children. 
In a day when Indians said that on the night before they had watched the Christians from behind some trees, they saw them take along many persons in chains. Our countrymen, these slave catchers, were startled when they saw us approaching. Yet almost with their first words, they began to recite their troubles. The idea of enslaving our Indians occurred to them in due course, and they were vexed at us for preventing it. They had their interpreter make a fine speech. He told our Indians that we were, as a matter of fact, Christians too, but had gone astray for a long while and were people of no luck and little heart. But the Christians on horseback were real Christians, and the laws of the land to be obeyed and served. Our Indians considered this point of view. They answered that the real Christians apparently lied, that we could not possibly be Christians, for we appeared out of sunrise, they out of sunset. We cured the sick, while they killed even the healthy. We went naked and barefoot, while they wore clothes and rode horseback and stuck people with lances. We asked for nothing and gave away all we were given, while they never gave anybody anything and had no other aim than to steal. In facing these marauders, I was compelled to face the Spanish gentleman I myself had been eight years before. What, Your Majesty, is so melancholy as to confront one's former unthinking and unfeeling self. It was many days before I could endure the touch of clothing, many a night before I could sleep in a bed. Shoes were the worst. In the Spanish settlements, I dared not go barefoot, for provincials are the most easily shocked of Spaniards. I had not valued enough the pressure of earth on my naked feet while permitted that refreshment. At first, I did not notice other ways in which our ancient civilization was affecting me. Yet soon I observed a certain reluctance in me to do good to others. I would say to myself, need I exert what is left of me, I who have undergone tortures in an open boat, and every privation and humiliation among the Indians, when there are strong, healthy men about me, fresh from holy church and from school, who know their Christian duty. We Europeans all talk this way to ourselves. It has become second nature to us. If one lives where all suffer and starve, one acts on one's own impulse to help. But where plenty abounds, we surrender our generosity believing that our country replaces us, each and several. This is not so, and indeed a delusion. On the contrary, the power of maintaining life in others lives within each of us, and from each of us does it recede when unused. It is a concentrated power. If you are not acquainted with it, your majesty can have no inkling of what it is like what it pretends, or the ways in which it slips from one. In the name of God, Your Majesty, farewell. <laughs> 